Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Meg Laman will join us to discuss the Arbonaut. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the amazing world of trees is nothing if not viewed from the canopy above us. And joining us today to discuss her work is Dr. Meg Lapman, biologist, educator, ecologist, writer, editor, and public speaker. She is executive director of the Tree Foundation and a professor at the National University of Singapore, Arizona State University, and University Science Malaysia. Nicknamed the Real Life Lorax by National Geographic and Einstein of the Tree Trops by the Wall Street Journal, she has pioneered the science of canopy ecology. She has penned a new book of her life's work entitled The Arbonaut, A Life Discovering the Eighth Continent in the Trees Above Us. Dr. Lauman, thank you so much for joining us today on the Crocs Science Show. Well, such a pleasure. I wish I could be meeting you up in a tree. <laughs> As would I. I imagine the view is uh, fantastic from up there. It would be. Great. I guess the radio audience wouldn't appreciate it, but maybe someday you can come visit and we can meet in the treetops. Uh, I think really a very fascinating biography you've put together. I mean, certainly conveys a lot of the excitement that you've had in your career. Here's why you decided to put the book together. Sure. Hope in a funny sense that maybe a lot of girls in science, as well as boys, because I am the mother of two young men, might learn from what I call my misadventures. I feel that I absolutely stumbled in so many ways through my career. And of course, I ended up dangling out on a rope and out on a limb and did all sorts of crazy things. And so maybe my work can help guide others to be a little bit more strategic in their work. And I say that as well, being a woman in science, where I was so often the only girl on an expedition. And I'm very hopeful my book might recruit a few more Arbornauts because we really only have a handful to date. And there's a whole lot to do in the tops of trees around the world. Well, I, tell us about that. I mean, certainly a career in science is difficult under any circumstances, but imagine more so if you're a, a young girl trying to pursue a career. Right. It was pretty crazy. I think back, you know, I was in fifth grade when my teacher said, "You, there's a science fair and you could take your little wildflower collection. Of course, I was the only kid from my school that went along to, you know, some university auditorium two hours away from my tiny small town. And I was surrounded practically by about 499 boys, many doing those volcano experiments and shrieking and yelling. And I was such a shy, tongue-tied geek. And that was my entree into the world of science. I, I did manage to get a second prize, a little plastic trophy, but it reminded me that I was very outnumbered and I didn't have a strong voice. I think I loved trees and plants because they didn't talk back. And so it was a very lovely place to be out in the middle of the forest so often. But as I grew up, I had to develop that voice, a voice for the trees as well as for women in science. And I hope the book is one way of giving back to my scientific community, especially to the next generation. 
What was it about trees? How do you become interested in them? And in particular, thinking about the canopies of trees? Yeah, it is funny. You know, I did the quintessential thing, made a few tree forts with a couple girlfriends in my little tiny rural town. I grew up in the northern part of New York State. Uh, that was so much fun, I have to admit. And uh, again, as I loved nature, I loved birds, I loved bugs, I collected snakeskins and birds' eggs on the forest floor and dried plants and all sorts of things. And to be honest, trees were the basis. Even as a kid, I could look around and say, wow, the birds need the trees, the bugs need the trees, the animals need the trees. So I did pretty early on develop a strong passion for trees. And what's really funny is at the time building those little tree forts, we kids escaped from adults by going into our tree forts. And it only dawned on me when I got to grad school that, well, guess why? Because when you get up into the canopy, it's out of sight from the forest floor. And I think that's been one of the shortfalls of forest science for about 100 years is that most of the research was done looking up from ground level, and you can really only see about 5% of the tree. So by becoming an arbornaut, I was able to correct a lot of the fallacies in our view of forests and hopefully contribute to the knowledge of how we can protect these wonderful trees. Wasn't that surprising to you that no one had really thought about just going up there? What is going on up here in the tops of the trees? It's hilarious. I call it hit you over the head science. I didn't think that I was any kind of super clever person or anybody that was an Einstein at all. But lo and behold, when I climbed a tree after I sewed my own harness and welded a slingshot out of a piece of metal, I got to the top and it was a whole different world. It was this noisy mayhem full of pollinators and bugs having sex and all sorts of things going on, flowering and fruiting and photosynthesis. So it was just uncanny that it was that different. And I realized that when you cut a tree down, and that's how most people used to see the canopy, nothing is left. All those things fly away and even the bird's nests fall out of their boughs. So being in the tree as an arbor knot really is the only way that we can get a handle on what's going on up there and what kind of important things are really causing us to be healthy and alive and keep our planet vibrant. Your research adventures really have taken you kind of all over the place, uh, rainforests, dry forests. Uh, are there any particular environments that particularly grow to love or are they all just different in their own way? Well, you know, I did start out, of course, as a temperate zone kid where I shoveled a lot of snow in the winter and the trees lost all their leaves. So I thought that's how the whole world worked. And boy, did I get the shock of my life when I got a scholarship to go study rainforests in Sydney University, Australia, arrived, found these enormously tall trees with no view of the top. And also the fact that the leaves lived 12 months a year, they were always green. So I thought, holy cow, I guess I really should try to figure out how long these leaves lived. It seemed like such a simple question. It caused me to fall in love with tropical rainforests because they're always flowering and fruiting and leafing. And lo and behold, by being in the tree, I found out that some of the leaves lasted over 20 years, which was such a difference from my little tiny temperate forest calendar. So that was just a very basic piece of information, but I've discovered so many other things from that simple act of just climbing up the trees and making observations. And yes, I do love tropical trees, and maybe in part I love them because 
so many cool things live up there and also because we're losing them so quickly and we need to really shout about it and educate people about how important it is to save our rainforest. Well, we are on the radio, but I'm just curious if maybe you can describe the experience of what it is like to be up in the canopy in those in those rainforests. I mean, it must be fantastic. I mean, it is. And, you know, astronauts explore outer space. Obviously, everyone knows that term. And the word arbornaut was coined by a handful of us because we explore the tops of trees, which really isn't that far away. It might be as much as 200 feet above your head. And sometimes it's even only 50 feet above your head. But that transition from the forest floor, say in a rainforest where only about 1% of light hits the bottom of the tree and it's dark and it's humid and it's very still and sultry. You go up that rope that's kind of snaky and very quietly look around and dangle and sway and get a little scared sometimes. And you hit that mid canopy where the sun flecks start to poke through and you see occasional air plants, things like orchids and maybe some medium-sized leaves. As you get lighter in the canopy, the leaf shape gets smaller and tougher as they're more acclimatized to higher winds and slightly drier conditions. And you keep on climbing and it's still a little bit quiet, but when you hit that canopy, it's riotous with sound, with sight, with activity, with, gosh, millions of species, literally, zooming around doing their thing because that's where all the flowers are and all the foliage and all the energy production. So it kind of makes sense. It's like going to Times Square, right? You can go to rural upstate New York and nobody's doing anything, or you can go to the middle of Times Square, which is kind of like the forest canopy where everything is happening 24-7. And for me on that little tiny rope, it was just such an amazing view of the world to be in the tops of the trees. And you go back and forth a little bit, you see about a thousand shades of green and about a million beetles and lots of other cool things. So I have to say, I hope you can do it someday. It's a fabulous experience. And part of my work now is building canopy walkways, these aerial bridges, so that everybody can go into the treetops. Maybe climbing on a rope that's swaying back and forth isn't for everyone, but there are different methods that we've developed as arbor knots that we can share our treetops with the public. And I hope that will be you. <laughs> I mean, you must have seen a lot of change, a lot of growing appreciation for just how amazing it is up on the canopy. I mean, do you think now that more scientists have now drawn to studying the canopy? I think we've really turned the corner. I think just in the same way as probably a hundred years ago, nobody really thought seriously about what might be on the moon or if there's life on Mars. They might have dreamed about it, but nobody was really focused on it day to day. And I think nobody was really focused on the canopy of trees until a handful of us did start to go up there and see what was up there and measure it and come down and share pictures and share data. And then all of a sudden, we're aware that something like 50% of the species on the land part of our planet live in the tops of a gosh darn tree. It really changes your perspective. It's made people appreciate it. I will say that when I first got to Australia long ago in 1979, the culture of the country was mostly, let's cut this forest down. Rainforests are gloomy, they're dark, they're full of poisonous snakes and leeches and 
gosh, it would do everyone a service if we cut them all down. And I really was on the edge of a movement and a cultural change where a few of us did start to produce data on the amazing wealth of forests and the important um, services they provided to humans. And so we were able to save that last percent, about 5% of Australia's rainforests. And I think worldwide, scientists have now suddenly been able to communicate to the public how absolutely critical a whole tree is to the public, not just a log, not just a tree trunk, not just little tiny saplings or seedlings in a plantation, but this whole forest, which contains all of this wealth of medicinal plants and cool biodiversity and fruits and flowers and sustainable products that we use every day. So we have really, I think, turned the corner in terms of most people appreciating the importance of forests. But we still have a big challenge in front of us, which is how do you educate the public about the fact that what they buy in the store relates to whether or not forests get cut down and what they can't see maybe in the Amazon or in Indonesia is still affecting their lives and their children and the planet in general. We can't just deforest things that are out of sight. We have to really take on a stewardship of trees that's planetary and not just local. Do you think that there's still a lot of work then should be done in terms of preserving the forests that we have? I think there has been a lot of work done, which is great. And I think kids and young people are responsible for a lot of that. It's so heartwarming for me when I give school talks, which I do a lot, that kids ask great questions, they're knowledgeable, and they really, really care. But as I said, we do have some places where we can do better. And part of that would be the very fortunate countries like America and Europe that have a huge consumer budget. And we've got to ask questions. Is the coffee that we're drinking coming from a place that cleared the forest or is it coming from what we call shade grown coffee? Is your beef coming from a place where they might have cut the forest down or is it coming from a sustainable farm where they have been very carefully monitoring and taking care of stands of forest at the same time? Um, There's so much about our shopping habits. Palm oil is this huge thing found in makeup and shampoo. And I don't know if girls look at what's in these ingredients and say to themselves, I shouldn't be buying this because it's cutting the forests of Indonesia down to grow the palm oil plantation. So we have still a lot of education in our checkbooks as fortunate developed countries where we really need to help each other save these forests in ways that goes right through the supply chain not good enough just to talk about it in school or talk about it at a cocktail party. We have to act upon it. Well, one of your uh, many roles is the executive director of the Tree Foundation. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the work that's done there in terms of raising that awareness. Sure. And uh, I started a foundation about 20 years ago to actually help other countries, including our own, uh, build canopy walkways. One of the tools that I help design as an arbor nut is this aerial trail type of system. And we've been doing that for countries that might be able to benefit in a conservation sense, because when you attract ecotourism, you bring in income to local indigenous people. And in exchange, you usually create a stewardship of conservation, which is so great. So the Tree Foundation now has an exciting project called Mission Green. It's in partnership with a friend of mine named Sylvia Earle, who is an oceanographer and started a program called Mission Blue, where Sylvia helps identify 
what she calls hope spots in the ocean to save really important coral reefs and important mangrove fisheries and things like that. And so her mission blue is helping oceans. And I started mission green in parallel to identify hotspots of highest biodiversity forests on the planet. And with the help of E.O. Wilson at Harvard and some of the other top biologists around the world, we have that list of those really critical forests. And so Mission Green and my little tiny tree foundation are building these canopy walkways, training indigenous people to be the guides, the chefs, the tour naturalists, the boat drivers, whatever it takes to give them sustainable employment in their local districts, and then bring tourists to really appreciate and learn about the rainforest canopy. Uh, we had a great success with the walkway in Malaysia that's now open. We have another walkway in the Amazon that's open, but we still need funding to hire and train the local people. Uh, we have another walkway proposed for Madagascar that we'll be funding, fundraising for next year and hopefully designing and building really soon because Madagascar, unfortunately, has only about 5% of her primary forest remaining. So we're under a really urgent timeline, but at least we have our work cut out for us because we know those forests that are the most urgent to save and do have the highest biodiversity. So stay tuned. You can get our free newsletter on our website, www.treefoundation.org, and um, find out our progress. And you can read about it in the last chapter of my book where I outline this kind of action role that we scientists working with the public really can take to make a difference and save some of these precious, precious forests. What would you hope then people will take from the book, from learning about trees, and what are your hopes for the future of uh, research and conservation of trees in the tree canopy? Wow, what a great question. I guess first and foremost, I hope that people will read my book and say, holy cow, here was some average, ordinary, shy girl. I had no assets in life. I didn't know any scientists. I didn't live near the Smithsonian. I never knew any famous professors or anything in my childhood, but, you know, it is possible for just average kids to make discoveries and pursue a career and follow your dreams and get it done. So I think maybe my story can tell that story and share it with other young people. I think, too, that this business of hit you over the head science that I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of discoveries still to be made, which is really exciting. And forests are one of them. And of that 50% of biodiversity living in the forest canopy, we think we know less than 10%. So that leaves a lot for the next generation to discover, to understand, to save and conserve. And so I hope my story will inspire some of those readers to become arbornauts. And if they're too old to become tree climbers, maybe they can become people that support the message and the mission of Mission Green and forest conservation, because truly without trees, our kids have no future and our planet has no help. So we do need to turn this situation around really fast. And if my book can bring that story to diverse people that might not have otherwise learned about trees, then I will feel really happy about that. So thanks for asking. We were just talking with Dr. Meg Laman. She's the author of her new book, The Arbonaut, A Life Discovering the Eighth Continent in the Trees Above Us. Dr. Laman, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, thank you. Such a pleasure. 
And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.